0: You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We've been working our way through this book, this chapter And when it comes to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, this is the sixth sixth time that we've been here. And now we're getting to the resurrection. Although we have said a lot about it so far. But if you would stand with me as we honor the reading of Scripture together, we're going to pick up in verse uh, 38. and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you, I know that you always hear me. I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with Linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth And Jesus said to them Unbind him and let him go Let's pray Our heavenly father we come to you this morning As we approach your word Lord I pray that You would guide us this morning That you would Your spirit would be active In this room That our hearts would be open That our eyes would See truth Lord, we pray that we would be people who long to plumb the the depths of your wonderful word to us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through it. Lord, I pray that you would guide us in how we ought to to live our life. Lord, if there's areas in which we fall short, I pray that those would be made known. Lord, and I pray that you would grant us the ability to, to repent and turn and walk with Jesus. And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. What is the, the hope of the Christian life? This is, this is a question that we've talked about a lot over the past several weeks, and we summarized this by simply saying... The hope of the Christian life is in the fact that Jesus gives life. This is the hope that Jesus gave to Martha when he said to her, your brother will rise again. Let me just share with you how one classic Christian resource that has stood the test of time answers that question. Let me read to you from the, the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question speaks of the hope that a believer has. The question is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all of the power of the devil he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father not a hair can fall from my head indeed all things must work together for my salvation therefore by his holy spirit he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him it's a it's a beautiful statement but let me ask you this as we think about that statement what does it mean let me say it this way how is it that one belongs body and soul to Jesus Christ in death notice that the catechism affirms right from the start, the first question, the glorious resurrection. In death, our hope is that one day we will live with him. And it, it sets this up, this truth up is a great comfort in the life of the Christian. But all of this really brings to our mind a, another question, doesn't it? And that is, what happens to a person after they die? Right? If, if our hope is this, that that one day we will be with God. But what exactly happens? And and I think this whole uh, discussion of of Lazarus, I I can't tell you how many times over the past six weeks that I've gotten discussions with people, and and this story has been in our mind, and they've asked the question like, well, what happens after you die? It's not really a question that any of us really like to think about on one level. But the scriptures are, are clear on this. The body remains. The body is, is buried. We, we deal with that. But the soul, right, the, the part, that part goes on to be with the Lord forever. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.8. In theology, we call this the intermediate state, meaning that this time period will not last forever, but there will be a day in which our soul will be reunited with our body, a resurrected and glorified body. Listen to how the the Second London Baptist Confession puts it. It says this, The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous being made perfect in holiness are received into paradise where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory waiting for the full redemption of their bodies." In a nutshell, that's what happens. Of course, there's a, a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions that the confession doesn't answer there, a, a few that it does. But for instance, there is, a, there is a view called soul sleep. And it basically says that when a, a person dies, their soul sleeps, in a, in a sense, and it, and it waits for the, the resurrection. And the confession confronts this. The soul doesn't either die or neither, it doesn't sleep. And it says this is, this is not the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is that the soul of a believer goes to God and at some point it will be reunited with the body and that is the resurrection and that is the Christian hope. That is the Christian certainty that they long for. Christian hope is when they die, ultimately our body and soul are reunited in the presence of God, and we will live and worship the God that created us and redeemed us forever and ever. Now, I I know what you might be thinking. Some of you are thinking it anyway. And that is, okay, that's fine and good, but what happened to Lazarus those four days? Or better, what happened to his soul? We know what happened to his body, his body was in the tomb. So where was his soul? Was it in heaven? And then did it get called back to his body? Did uh, he have one of those kind of experiences? You know, like the ones that people write books about from time to time that you shouldn't buy. If he were in heaven and he told people that story, I think we would have probably heard that account because it would have been pretty important. Of course, anything like that is speculation because we just don't know. What we do know is that what happened to Lazarus is out of the ordinary. And we're not exactly sure how it all worked out. We don't know if his, if his soul stayed within his body in this one instance. It, it went to sleep. We don't know if, if, if there was some kind of intermediate place of waiting like a Sheol or that God actually here did something unique in this situation that isn't even in our realm of understanding, and we possibly can't even imagine what happened in this situation. What I'm saying here is there's really no way of knowing where Lazarus' soul was for those four days, but we do know that his soul and his body were reunited when Jesus called him from the tomb. That is resurrection. And I think this is the point of the sign here. The last sign in the book of John. That there was no question that Lazarus was dead and that Jesus raised him from the dead. Meaning that wherever Lazarus' soul was, it wasn't united with his body until Jesus spoke and called him forth out of the tomb. So why doesn't the Bible tell us these things? Why doesn't the Bible tell us more? Well, the obvious answer here is that we just, we don't need to know that. Jesus' point in all of this is to show that he is the resurrection and the life. That he is both the source of resurrection and he is the source of life. And this is exactly what he told Martha a few minutes earlier, and now it's being played out in the life of Lazarus. Let me just back up a little bit. Last time, we were really focused our attention on verse 40, and we showed that Jesus is the true object of our faith. That faith isn't some kind of mysterious thing, but faith always has an object. And so now we need to turn and look at the the miracle itself. So Martha, remember she protested as Jesus wants the stone removed she must have relented somewhere in there because they removed the stone and then Jesus prays now at this point we we need to agree on a couple things first of all and I know this is very obvious but we need to to agree on the fact that Jesus prayed to the Father. So we we need to make sure this is kind of um, an assumption that we're making as we're approaching this prayer. Jesus is praying to the Father. Secondly, in this one I'm drawing somewhat of an inference here, but I think it's very clear in the text, and that is that Jesus prayed out loud, right? I I think we can agree on those things. John doesn't tell us that Jesus prayed out loud, but since John was there and he recorded the prayer, I, I think we can safely say that Jesus prayed it loud enough for people to hear it for John to hear it. And Jesus says that he prayed it in order that those might believe that are standing around. So it brings up an interesting question and it is important. It's a a Trinitarian question and that is if Jesus is God why does he pray to God? It sounds like a question that some little punk on the internet that is arguing uh, against the deity of Jesus is going to to, to bring up kind of a really bad gotcha question. If Jesus is God, then how can we praise to God? But how would we answer it? I, I don't want to take a lot of time here, but let's just look at the question a little bit. First of all, when did Jesus pray? I mean, think about this for a moment. When did Jesus pray? Well, he prayed a lot. Let me just share with you one instance because I I think it's a good uh, place to to go here. Luke chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one but go and show himself to the priest and make an offering for his cleansing as Moses commanded for proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus' popularity is growing. And Luke tells us that often, often he would withdraw. He would go to be by himself and he would pray. It it is interesting that he didn't pray for the power to heal. We're we're not told that. All these people would, would come and they would come to be healed. But that's not where the prayer part comes into the text at all, is it? that isn't why he prayed but luke makes it clear in contrast between the the gathering crowds and jesus's withdrawal that, that there was times where jesus just wanted to be alone with the father now we know that jesus is the eternal son of god he's the second person of the trinity that jesus has a a unique relationship with the father in fact Jesus' relationship with the Father was one where he enjoyed an unbroken communion with God, but we also realize that Jesus was fully human. And of course, Jesus' humanity doesn't detract from his deity or limit it in any fashion. But as the God man communed with God, he would do so through prayer. It actually makes a lot of sense. Now what doesn't make sense is the word need. Need for Christ. God does not need anything. Jesus didn't need anything. He didn't need to pray. He didn't need to confess sin. He didn't need strength. He was never in turmoil about what the will of God was. He never had to discern that. You see, all of these reasons that we pray that we need God, that we come in utter dependence because of our weakness, because of our brokenness, Jesus didn't pray for those reasons. He was neither weak nor broke. So yes, there's, a, there's continuity here. Jesus prayed for the same reasons Christians do, because they have a relationship with God. They, they want communion with God. It's what Christ accomplished for us, that we could go to him. That's what Christians do. Our relationship with the Father is grounded in the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus dying for our sins, dealing with that penalty, making a a way for us to be right with God so that we could go to him and find mercy and grace and help in the time of need. He, He loves us in Christ. And this is why we come to him, because God, the God of the universe cares for us so much that we can come to him in our weaknesses, in our failures. Because when we are weak, he is strong. We can do all things through him who gives us strength. I mean, in all these verses, right, there's this dependence, and we come to him in prayer. That's why we we come to him. It's part of that relationship. It's part of who we are. It's part of our dependence. It's part of our communion. It's part of what we enjoy about our relationship with God. The God who rescued us from the curse of sin and death, but also adopted us into his family, and we enjoy everything that that means. It means that with boldness we can come to the throne of grace because we are his child. We don't have to be good enough to come. We're good enough in Christ. We come to him and and we, we ask him, For the forgiveness of sin, because we know that he is faithful and just, and he will forgive our sin. Because even when we are faithless, he is faithful because he can't deny himself. Because we are his children, we are clothed in his righteousness alone. Yes, we pray, and it's about relationship, it's about communion. That's what the child of God does. And Jesus, too, he prayed because he enjoyed communion with God. Of course, this looked remarkably different because Jesus wasn't broken and weak like we are. In other words, we need him desperately, but he needs nothing. Now, thinking about this prayer that Jesus prayed there are really two things here that I I want us to see the the first is that Jesus prays out loud here but he he doesn't pray that God will raise Lazarus from the dead I I want you to, to notice this he doesn't say God if this is your will please do this thing in fact in his prayer there was an assumption made that this was already part of God's plan this has already been decreed. Now when I say God's will, I'm making a reference to the single will of God. I think this is so important for us to grasp because we don't set the will of the Father up against the will of Jesus. Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to be raised. In fact, We said this weeks ago as we started this story that the news came to Jesus that his friend was sick and Jesus stayed there a couple more days and delayed his coming. Why would he do such a thing? Because he knew this was God's will that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. Of course, that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't thankful. He thanks God for hearing him, knowing that God always hears him. So what is he thanking God for? Even though the the raising of Lazarus had been determined, doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't thankful for it. And it also doesn't mean that Jesus longed to have Lazarus with him again. Certainly he did. This was was a difficult time for Jesus. Jesus was sad. He, He wept, and it wasn't fake crying. It wasn't a publicity stunt. Jesus wept. He he cried over the the death of Lazarus. This was an important moment in his life. Certainly, he's thanking God for the the provision of, of Lazarus coming back to life. Now, as I think about this to this point, I start thinking about my own prayer life. You start asking questions. You know, why did Jesus pray? Why do we pray? What was his prayer here like? And then we start asking questions about, what is my own prayer life like? And, and, and certain words start coming into my mind, and I'm assuming a, a lot of yours as well, like the words inadequate. And if we're honest, I would say that, that most of us would say that, that we don't pray enough, or we don't pray like we should, And I wonder what that says about me. Have you ever wondered about that? Does it mean that we don't care? Does it mean that we're not really Christians? Possibly, I suppose. But it definitely says that I don't feel the need... For that communion with God, like I ought to, it says that I'm not as dependent on him as I should be. And if I'm not as dependent on him as I should be, that means that I'm more dependent on whom? Myself, than I ought to be. Think about that in your own If prayer is communion with God, if it is a a sign of dependence and reliance, then why don't we pray to whom we're dependent on? And if we don't, who are we dependent on? Who do we rely on? But I think there's something even more here that we need to see, and that is that Jesus' faith in God in this prayer was a, a public matter. Jesus knew that Lazarus was about to be healed. He knew that God would hear him. But yet, his, his faith, his trust that God would do this was on display. His certainty was on display. He trusted God. And he wanted people to, to see this Jesus prayed out loud here, and he prayed on account of those who were standing there that they might believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, God's own son, sent from God himself, a voice that they should listen to and trust, the one that holds the key to to resurrection in his hand. Have you ever wondered why we have in the order of service the, the pastoral prayer part and, I, and, I, and by that I, I mean why do we pray all of those things publicly I visited with someone one time and we were talking about the verse that, that tells us that we ought to pray continually and what, that, what we thought that meant and, and this person said that, that we were always supposed to be in an attitude of prayer and, and I, at that point I agree. And, and he went on to suggest that we don't need to, to formally pray just ourselves we don't need to pray we don't need to pray out loud we don't need to pray in public we don't need to pray before we go to bed basically what he was advocating for was no prayer but only an attitude of prayer kind of like I'll keep you in my thoughts and prayers but that isn't right either Some would say that public prayer is too showy. They they would say it's pharisaical. Remember uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee, he prayed, uh, the the Pharisee prayed the the prayer for all of the the people to to hear around him, but the tax collector, he couldn't even look to heaven because he was uh, such a sinner. Right? The the story, we should be like the, the tax collector, not the Pharisee. Does that mean we don't pray in public? Of course not. But what about another question there? Is is—is there anything special about when the pastor prays? You know, why can't we just have those prayer items in the bulletin and have an attitude of prayer and we can depend on God to take care of all of those things? Why couldn't we just say, hey, everybody just go home and pray about these things this week when you see them? We could. The pastor doesn't have to pray for them. And we don't have to pray for them publicly. That isn't some kind of magical formula. But what public prayer does is that it, it, it draws the hearers into the relationship that exists between the prayer-er and his God isn't that why Jesus prayed here he wanted to, to draw his hearers into that relationship in order that they might come to believe Right? believe is faith Jesus' faith is on display his trust in God is on display and he wants those hearing this to have that kind of same trust in God utter dependence Who is it that gives life? God. Jesus Christ gives life. That is hope. Trust that. Depend on that. Focus on that. That's his point. He wanted to draw the listeners into that so that they would see his faith. Certainly in this case, it is more than that. In this case, it demonstrated the fact that Jesus didn't do this all on his own either. Jesus wasn't some kind of rogue agent. But he wanted these people to see the love and care of the Father, the provision that he had by sending his own son into the world to save them from their sin as their source of life. So Jesus isn't doing this alone and his prayer demonstrates that. In our prayer life, public prayer demonstrates a dependence on God too, doesn't it? In John chapter 15, we'll get to that in a while. But we read there that apart from him, we can do what? Nothing. Not a little bit, not some stuff, not just the important stuff or the non-important stuff, but actually nothing. Nothing. And if that isn't an incentive to pray, I'm not sure what is. You see, we are utterly dependent on him. So Jesus prays, and then he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I, I can't imagine being at this scene, having the tomb opened after four days and then seeing and hearing jesus yell into the tomb it must have been quite a sight but yet this is what happens spiritually whenever jesus calls those who are spiritually dead to spiritual life right we've said this over and over and over again and it's leading here jesus is the divine author of life All life has its origin in Christ. Spiritual life has its origin in Jesus. I love the way the reformers spoke about this. That salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I think this is the point that that Jesus is making here. Was Was Lazarus owed life? Of course not. Is anyone owed spiritual life? Of course not. We are by nature and by choice objects of God's divine wrath because of our active rebellion against God. If we speak of owing and what's owed to us, what we are owed is eternal damnation. That is what we deserve. If we receive spiritual life, it is solely by God's grace alone. Why is Jesus doing all of this? He says in his prayer to Martha in verse 40. If you believe, in order that these would believe, he says in the prayer, the only instrument by which we receive spiritual life, a right relationship with God, is through faith in Christ. And of course, We've noted this already, that faith always has an object, and that object is Christ Jesus alone. There is no other name under heaven by which people are saved. It is only Jesus. It's only faith in Christ. Now, I want to be clear here, and that is that Lazarus was dead, completely dead. It wasn't that he only appeared to be dead. It wasn't a a princess-bride-mostly-dead kind of situation. He was completely dead. There was no debate on this fact. Spiritually speaking, you and I were in that category at one point as well. Spiritually dead means no spiritual life in us whatsoever. There was no hope, and the only thing that awaited us was eternal death and fiery destruction. And Jesus called us forth. From spiritual death to spiritual life. And this is resurrection. Now I I want us to really grasp this. And that is that all life, that is spiritual life, has its origin in Christ alone. There are those who are quick to say that, that for Lazarus, or for Jesus to raise Lazarus, Lazarus obviously had no part in it. He was physically dead. But then when it comes to the spiritual reality that this all pictures, then suddenly Jesus needs our permission. Or in some respect, we become the determining factor. Therefore, spiritual life comes because Jesus made the path, but we closed the deal. My friend... There is a reason why Paul in Ephesians 2 uses the language that he does to describe the spiritual condition of the Ephesians before their salvation. He says that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, calling them objects of divine wrath because they lived in rebellion against God by following the ways of the devil and fulfilling the lusts of their flesh. Then the most beautiful part in all of Scripture comes. But God made you alive. One goes from spiritual death to spiritual life solely by one thing. God alone. It is Jesus saying to the lost sinner, come forth and live. And there was life. Some people ask how Lazarus could come out of the tomb if he was wrapped in grave clothes. In verse 44, we read that Lazarus, the man who had died, came out. Jesus called him and he came. But we also read that his hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Some say that the way this was done, there was no way in which he could have gotten up, let alone got out of the grave. Well, we need to take a little mi- a minute here and look to see how this was all done. Don Carson tells us that The corpse was usually laid on a a sheet of linen that was wide enough to cover their body and it was twice the length of their body. The body was placed on the sheet. The feet were uh, at one end of the the sheet and it was drawn over the head and back down over the feet. The feet were bound at the ankles and the arms were tied to the body with linen strips. The The face was bound with another cloth there was a name for that separate cloth. It was called uh, the, the On This is uh, the same way Jesus would have been prepared for burial. The point here is that a person that was prepared this way had their ankles tied together, their hands were tied to them, so they, they could maneuver, they could hop, they could struggle, they could get out of the tomb. What they couldn't do is they couldn't walk. This is why Jesus looked at him as he's shuffling and maneuvering himself to get out of the tomb, as he's hopping and he can't see because this things over his head. Jesus says, unbind him. Take it off. Let him go completely free. Obviously the man is alive. It's interesting how Jesus here involves others, isn't it? Jesus' point wasn't only to go and raise this man from the dead, but he was after belief. It was very personal. He, he ministered to, to Mary and Martha. He showed great concern. He, he met the needs of the grieving. But in speaking about the miracle itself, this is all Jesus. Jesus did it. He raised Lazarus from the dead, Christ alone. But yet, as he was working, as he was uh, acting... He had others do certain things like move the stone covering the grave. He had others unbind Lazarus after the miracle. And I want to make the, the point here as we close. And that is that, that spiritually there's, there's something to be said here. It's much the same. Jesus always saves the lost. Jesus opens their eyes. They see the, the truth of the gospel. They wouldn't see it if Jesus didn't open their eyes. Jesus gives new life where there is none. It's all Jesus. Spiritual life comes from Jesus alone. But the way God chooses to redeem, the way God chooses to do this, always involves others. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 10. Paul asks the question, how are people going to hear the gospel without somebody proclaiming it to them? Without somebody heralding it to them? And the answer is very simple. They won't, because this is the means that God uses as He saves the lost sinner. That the sovereign plan of God includes people, and it includes you and I, who love the people around us, our co workers, our friends, our family, that we will love them enough to share with them the need for Jesus that exists. We don't save anyone. God does that, but he uses us as we faithfully share the good news of Jesus. He opens their eyes. He lets them see it. And just like after Lazarus was made alive and and Jesus had the people unbind him, we too are called to be part of the lives of others, aren't we? To walk with them in life, to, to actively disciple them, to take them to take what was entrusted to them so that they might entrust it to others in order that they might go and make disciples. So I think the question for, here, for us here is, how are we being used by God? Who are we taking to Jesus? Who are we discipling? You know, who, who have you shared the gospel with lately? I think this is one of those questions that always pushes us back to the gospel. Doesn't it? Because we we start thinking all of a sudden of missed opportunities. We think of areas in which we could have been better. We think of areas that we should have been involved in, but we weren't. We think of places where we've fallen short and we have regret and there's guilt. But then... We think that Jesus excelled where we failed. And not only did Jesus excel where we failed, but he excelled for us. My friend, in Jesus Christ, we are good with God because, God, because Jesus' perfect obedience covers us. In faith, his perfect righteousness, is clo- we're clothed in it. So we don't do these things. We don't obey these commands of of God to be in God's good graces. We already are. We couldn't be better in his graces. Christ accomplished that for us. We do these things precisely because Jesus did that for us. And the more we contemplate what Jesus has done, the more we will long to please him out of gratitude not obligation. Isn't that something? You you take these these commands in in Scripture, these places that that make you feel guilty, and and then it pushes you back to the gospel. You rely on Jesus Christ. It makes us so grateful for what he did that we cannot do, that we long to, to walk forward through this life and live a life of obedience not out of obligation, not to earn a right relationship with Jesus, but because we're grateful that Jesus has already done that for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the fact that, that there is life in Jesus' name. That Jesus gives life. That there is tremendous hope. There is tremendous hope at the end of of this life. That when our body and our soul are are separated for a time. That that one day you will make things right. That we will live for eternity in the presence of God. Lord there is life. Life. In Jesus' name, every time a lost sinner places their faith and trust in the gospel, Lord, I pray that you would use us. Lord, I pray that you would put opportunities in our path, help us to see them, move us, that we might long to, to share the, the gospel not out of obligation not to earn a right standing, not to earn more jewels on a a crown, but because we're so grateful for saving us that we want to exalt our Savior by obediently sharing that good news with other people. Lord, I pray that we would actively be involved in the the lives of other people because we we care for them, because we see how you've used other people in, in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish this and so much more. More than we can ever ask, more than we can ever imagine because of the proclamation of your word. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.